The idea behind WebTorrent is to make uh, BitTorrent work on the web and to do that entirely without the use of servers. More recently, I've been designing my own programming language. I'm trying to make something that can replace JavaScript in the browser. Unlike other attempts at this in the past, the goal of WebTorrent is to maintain compatibility with BitTorrent as much as possible. So it speaks the same BitTorrent protocol, it just has a different transport. Ten years ago, there was probably 50 different startups whose only job was sending a big file from one person to another. You can now do that in the browser without touching any other service. I'm also trying to figure out how to cold vacuum fry bananas to make banana chips that taste like candy. I'm Matt, the organizer of the SF Video Technology Meetup and the Demux Conference. And I'm Steve, creator of VideoJS, the open source video player. And I'm Phil, the director of Media Technologies Engineering at Brightcove, previously building BBC iPlayer in London. And you're listening to Demuxed, a podcast for and by engineers working with video. Demux is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. We're always looking for topics, so if you have any suggestions or just want to tell us how wrong we are, you can find us on Twitter at Demuxed. Hey everybody, welcome to the fifth episode of Demuxed. Today we've got Faros and John from the popular WebTorrent project. But before we get started, we wanted to talk a little bit about Demux 2017. If you've come to the meetup in the last few months, you know that I will mention it forever, basically every time you see me until October, and then we'll start talking about 2018 like two months later. So the call for papers is now open, demux.com. There's a button at the top. You can go submit a talk. We're looking for anything and everything that's interesting to videos or engineers working with video. So if you can think of anything in that realm, you need to submit it. October 5th, Broadway Studios. It's going to be great. In San Francisco. In San Francisco. That's probably an important, <laughs> an important one. So yeah, I guess let's get into it. But in the meantime, after this podcast, you should go submit a talk. So today, as I said, we have John and Frost from WebTorrent. You might know these guys from things like PeerCDN, WebTorrent itself, Standard JS. Am I missing anything here from your illustrious open source careers? There is the stream HTTP module. It's used by Browserify and a bunch of other stuff to hmm. implement the node HTTP client interface in the browser. Hmm. So that's something else I've worked on. Cool. So I guess let's start off with, well, I, I guess you guys could probably give your own introductions better than I can, but <laughs> uh, for us, why don't, you, why don't you kick us off? Sure. People might know me from my open source work. I've worked on WebTorrent and Standard, like you said, and a bunch of other NPM packages. I help maintain Browserify in my not that much free time. <laughs> uh, and uh, made the buffer module for that, the browser implementation of buffer. Uh, like John said, he did the HTTP module for Browserify as well, and just you know various other NPM packages and things like that. Hi, I'm John. I was one of the peer CDN people, and relevant to this, we worked on the Yahoo Video Player, and then hmm. more recently, I've been working on other things. I'm designing my own programming language and some even less related to video things. <laughs> but uh, for right now, you know, I'm still maintaining video stream, which we'll be talking about, but that's mostly on the back burner these days. You should mention the the non-video stuff you're doing. You should you oh. should just give a quick uh, <laughs> well, it's pretty cool. I'm uh, <laughs> Yeah, programming language. You said you were working on your own things. I did yeah, not think programming language. I, I'm, I'm doing that. It's it's still untitled, but I'm Trying to 
make something that can replace JavaScript in the browser for now, but I also want to... <laughs> Why would you that. ever want to do that? <laughs> yeah, I want to adapt I, that to Internet of Things platforms eventually, too. And I'm also trying to figure out how to cold vacuum fry bananas to make banana chips that taste like candy. But that's awesome. <laughs> I get the feeling that Frost had a very uh, specific intent with that question. Yeah. Okay, we'll get back to the bananas because I think that might be uh, the cornerstone of the podcast by the time we're done. But that's awesome. Cool. So I guess let's kick off with what is WebTorrent. You guys want to give us a little background? Yeah, sure. The idea behind WebTorrent is to make uh, BitTorrent work on the web, so in the browser. So um, the idea is any web browser should be able to connect to a, a peer-to-peer swarm and fetch content uh, and verify that it's correct and then display it to the user. And to do that entirely without, well, as much as possible without the use of servers. So just relying entirely on the browsers themselves. So a network made up entirely of uh, people's browsers. And uh, unlike other attempts at this in the past, including peer CDN, which is something we did as a startup before WebTorrent, the goal of WebTorrent is to maintain uh, compatibility with BitTorrent as much as possible. So it speaks the same BitTorrent protocol, it just has a different transport. Instead of using uh, TCP and UDP, which doesn't work on the web currently, it uses WebRTC, uh, which does work on the web, uh, which is a way to connect browsers directly to each other on the web. So it's really the only option we have here if, if we don't want to involve servers, right? We don't want to do something with WebSockets and deal with the middleman server. We just want to really make a true, true peer-to-peer network on the web. And, and um, yeah, and that's what it is. So it uh, works today. You can install it from NPM, and you can put in a magnet link or a, a link to a torrent file and say, go and get that for me, and it'll give you back the stream of bytes uh, right from the torrent. And you can do whatever you want with it, including uh, streaming it into a video tag, or just accessing the data yourself to do whatever kind of thing you want your application to do. Um, and one of the coolest things you can do with it is actually um, combining it with existing HTTP URLs, where you have some content that exists already on a server. You can actually do a hybrid between like peers and the server. So mm. if there are no peers, the very first peer can just go and get it from the server and become the first peer. Mm. So there's really interesting applications you can do with that sort of hybrid approach. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, I have noticed that a few times mm-hmm. on your website. When you know it's a big, big Centel demo, right? And occasionally there aren't enough peers, and so like I've sent links to people and been like, "Check this out! Isn't this awesome? Like these guys are going to be on the podcast." And uh, they're like, "Not nothing's." Oh, happening. you know, I think that's actually. I think this server ran out of disk space uh, a week ago, so that's <laughs> not bad. Okay, that's very. <laughs> yep, that's about a week ago. So actually, all the all the files are getting truncated halfway through. Like the, the JS bundle was like half of the bundle, so it didn't work. Yeah, okay. there's normal. There's normally. Uh, a few peers, at least online, at any given time. Yeah, every other time I've gone, there's the yeah. beautiful little like spider web that yep. pops up in the in the corner. And it's, yeah, I'm looking at it now. There's there's about eight people on there. So for us, do you want yeah. to talk about WebTorrent Desktop too? Oh yeah, sure. So part of the challenge with WebTorrent is that because it's speaking WebRTC, you can't actually talk to existing BitTorrent clients that are out there, mm-hmm. and that's actually a huge install base of users, right? There's mm-hmm. like hundreds of millions of people with Torrent apps on their computer, mm-hmm. um, and we can't talk to them. So uh, that means that like the strength of the network isn't as good as it could be. Why? Why is that? What's the complication there? Well. Um, Browsers can't send uh, UDP packets or open up uh, okay. TCP connections. It's just like considered a thing that 
you know, we don't want browsers to do for security right. reasons. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't want like a, a web page with an ad in it to be able to like send some packets to your printer and you know <laughs> print some stuff or something like that. That's just that's terrible, right? Somebody exactly. wants that. <laughs> <laughs> so they they created this whole new protocol called WebRTC that facilitates peer to peer communication in the browser, and so that's what we built WebTorrent on top of. Mm-hmm. But the cool part is, since almost everything is the same, and we just made this new transport. We can actually very easily support the TCP and the UDP and the old style of connecting to BitTorrent apps mm. in the same module. It's just that that won't work in the browser. And so part of what we did to kind of bridge the two worlds was we made a desktop app. And the desktop app can actually talk both styles. It can do WebRTC and it can talk to existing Torn apps because it's on the desktop, right? Uh-huh. Um, and it's, we did it with Electron, which made it really, really easy. If you're familiar with Electron, it's mm-hmm. a way to make desktop apps using JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have access to all of the APIs from Chrome and from Node in the same process. So what WebTorrent does when you run it in Electron is it'll say, oh, I can require the net module and the dgram module, and so I can do TCP and UDP. Oh, but I can also uh, there's also a WebRTC object, so I'll mm-hmm. use that as well. And so it just finds peers from both worlds. And so anybody who's downloading anything in there is sharing it to browsers. Yeah, that's great. That that's that awesome. was kind of my my first question. Looking at the site, is I saw the desktop version, and I was my first question was like, why do you need a desktop version if it's <laughs> WebTorrent? But th- that makes a lot of sense. So ultimately, like you'd hope people who have other BitTorrent streaming applications would switch over to your desktop version because then it would open up the possibilities of what you can do with totally. it. Totally right. Or you could alternately build WebRTC and the WebTorrent transport into. Other clients is that? Mm. Are you still working on that? So one mainstream client added WebTorrent support. So that's called uh, Vuz. They used to be known as Azurius. I think a lot of people mm, probably yeah. used them back when they were called Azurius. Yep. Yeah, it's not the most elegant integration, but it works. And then there's WebTorrent Desktop, and then there's uh, I think even like some sketchier apps like Popcorn Time uh, added WebTorrent. <laughs> so, but. There are there are definitely other people using it, but we thought it would be a good idea to jumpstart it by just mm-hmm. making our own client. Plus, there's so much low hanging fruit. Like if you've used a BitTorrent client at any time in the last few years, you'll see they're just almost all terrible. Like <laughs> full of ads. Uh, you know, UTorrent at one point actually shipped a Bitcoin miner oh. with their app and said oh, it was an accident. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so that's that's sort of what we're competing against. So it wasn't hard to make something better. Yeah, and so we were thinking, you know, that'll get us some users, and that'll make the uh, the web network strong, and that's sort of what's happened since we released it. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, there's about actually uh, five hundred thousand people, I think, last time I checked out had downloaded it, so it's pretty good. Wow, that's great. Yeah. So it's uh, it's WWDC this week. Um, the big exciting one, Safari WebRTC. You know. Everyone's super excited. That's got to be big for you guys, right? Gives you a, another browser in the door. Yeah, it should. You know, I haven't really looked into what they've announced. I don't know if they're adding data channel support. They, they are. Yet. Oh, good. Yeah. So I've heard that it's going to be in iOS 11, and they're also going to put it in Safari on the last two versions of macOS, and then of course the next one coming out, uh, High Sierra. Oh, nice. So. Okay. It should be in Safari, but as far as data channel goes, it is in Safari. But I've heard rumors that it requires a webcam permission before it will work, mm. which would sort of cause problems for us because we want to just make data connections without asking the user for their webcam. So even if you just use the data channels, it'll ask you to use the webcam. I think it'll just deny it if you do that before you've gotten a webcam. That's what I've heard. It's just on Twitter. I haven't tried it myself, so okay. we should try it. This is just a rumor. Yeah, I gotta. <laughs> I guess I gotta try out the beta and see. Yeah, 
I'm glad they're finally on board. They were yeah. like dragging their feet for so many years. Mm-hmm. Now we just gotta get data channel and edge, and then we'll be good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, in, more in general, right? Are you guys really focused on video? Is online video the key to what you guys want to do? Is that like the core of of what you want this tech to be to be about? I think video is where it's most useful because the thing about peer-to-peer is if you're not combining it with HTTP in a hybrid approach like I mentioned before, then peer-to-peer alone has higher latency up front because you have to find peers. So it doesn't make sense to use it for smaller things in general. Usually you want to use it for big things, big files. Video makes a lot of sense. If you just do peer-to-peer with video, you'll have you know, maybe five seconds of waiting up front to find peers and stuff, which I know probably sounds horrible to you guys <laughs> because you're, you're doing video player stuff with like CDNs and all this stuff. But for a peer-to-peer thing where you're no one's paying for the, the, the bandwidth, it's totally acceptable. And then you have like potentially long content, so it's fine. But yeah, for like images or for, you know, small data sets, it makes a lot less sense. So right. yeah, big files like video makes sense. And And plus, you know, if you don't want that latency, you can always get the first few seconds of the video from a server and then go peer-to-peer for the rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is, is that a big limitation of the system, that, that you have to have a copy on the server for it to be available everywhere all the time? Do you run into that at all, that like that's kind of like the blocker for this really taking off, is that as soon as somebody closes the browser, that file could be no longer available? Potentially, yeah. yeah. I mean, it needs to be seeded from somewhere, and at least at this point, since WebRTC isn't in, in every browser, you still mm-hmm. need HTTP fallback. Yeah, if you visit from Safari, you know, on iOS today, then if you don't have a what's called a web seed is what it's called in, in BitTorrent parlance, but it's basically an HTTP URL that has the content there. If you don't have that, then it just won't play. So yeah, for like robustness and especially for like content that isn't that popular, you would want to have that in case like all peers go away, then you can't access the content anymore. But you know what? There's actually, I have to say, there's a lot of use cases where you don't really care about the content living on forever. Um, like if I just want to send you a file, for mm-hmm. example, like I don't even necessarily want a copy of my file on some random hosting site. You know, mm-hmm. have you ever used one of those sites where you can upload like a gigabyte or something, and then you can send your friend a link? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Yeah, totally legit. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it would be better if you could just use a direct connection to their computer. And if you could do it through a little simple website, you both go to the same URL and you, you know, one of you drops a file on and the other person types a little code in or something. That's WebTorrent can be used for that. And if you encrypt the data when you first drop it on the browser, because WebRTC itself is encrypted, the mm. connections are encrypt, or end-to-end encrypted. Mm-hmm. So uh, you could either rely on that or you could do another layer of encryption and add a key to the Link that you send them so that they have to decrypt it as well if you mm-hmm. wanted to be extra safe. And yeah, then in that case, it doesn't matter. And are there any file size limitations to that? I would guess maybe not if that's the case. I think the biggest limitation that you run into in practice is the RAM on the user's computer if you're just keeping everything in memory on the okay. receiving end. Mm-hmm. But you can use index DB to store it as you get it. And then the limits are just whatever the index DB limits are, mm-hmm. which I think is like unlimited because you can just prompt the user for as much space as you need. Huh. That's great. Yeah, I remember like 10 years ago, there was probably 50 different startups whose only job was sending a big file from one person to another. <laughs> so you can now do that in the browser without touching any other service. That's, you know, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's basically yeah. the hello world of WebTorrent is that, is like sending a file. Like, it's literally 
one person just you do drag and drop, drop it onto the page, and then you create a torrent based on that. And then the magnet link is what you send to the person, basically, and then they, on the receiving end, download it. Was that correct me if I'm wrong? Was that instant.io? Yeah, that's the demo yeah. site. You can go to instant.io and try that the exact thing out uh, right now. I'm doing want. it right now, right now. <laughs> All right. Don't do that. You'll take out your your connection again. <laughs> yeah, don't do it, Phil. Uh, <laughs> So I was going to skip this one, but I am super curious. How often do you guys get confused with popcorn time? Like, do people assume that you like are the creators of it? Like, I I have to assume that it's at least come up before. Because actually, it's never come up for me. Really? Yeah. Because I feel like when I've told people about it, they've been like, "Oh, those the popcorn time guys." Maybe people just don't want to ask, but (laughs) (laughs) maybe I'm being crude. (laughs) Uh, No, I don't know. (laughs) I, I could see why someone might think that, but I mean, I certainly. Don't want to be involved with that kind of sketchy stuff. <laughs> cool. So we, we talked about this a little bit in the introductions, but both of you guys were involved in Peer CDN, which I believe sold to Yahoo in 2013, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I remember. I remember that's when I first met you. Is it NodeConf EU by 2012? No. 2013. It would have been 2013, but I don't think you'd been acquired just yet. Right, right. But um, that was October. Yeah. So it was right before it. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, for everybody that's uninitiated, do you want to give a little bit of background about what that was? Sure, I can do that. Uh, so it had a similar goal, kind of to WebTorrent. It was to play around with peer-to-peer and see what we could do to make you know browsers talk directly to each other and you know what opportunities there were there. And so we were you know hoping that people would use PeerCDN to augment their existing CDNs so they could opportunistically use peer-to-peer whenever possible, falling back to HTTP in all the other situations. So the idea would be you'd use it only if you could improve performance or if you you know wanted to save bandwidth. So if you're like You've buffered a bunch of the video, and you're, you know you have plenty of runway. Then maybe you say, you know what, for the for the rest of the bytes in this video, I'm just going to get them from peer to peer. I don't even care how slow it is because we're way ahead. We got plenty of time to spare. We're not in, in any risk of buffering. And so it was this thing you'd layer on top of your normal CDN. It would literally it was a script in your page that would literally sit there and intercept HTTP requests, and it would first try to get them from peer to peer if it could. You know, and then mm-hmm. it, it, you could basically have a strategy that would decide when to use peer to peer and when to use HTTP. I'm assuming you weren't using WebRTC then. No, no, it was. Yes, oh, it was. That's the whole thing that enabled it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because before that, there would only way to do this would be to force the user to install a plugin or something. And sure. so, what's the upside for them to install a plugin that's just going to use their bandwidth? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be yeah. kind of built in to the web and automatic for it to make any sense. Okay. So this would have been super early days of WebRTC. Yeah, it was pretty early. Yeah, there were a lot of browser bugs. <laughs> yeah, I can yeah. imagine. <laughs> I remember one time like Chrome crashed, and I had to look at the core dump and then look up the actual Chrome C plus plus source code <laughs> to figure out what the bug in my JavaScript was. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which is so weird, right? <laughs> uh huh. But not uncommon. I mean, similar experiences with the video element when it first came out, like. Half the browsers actually supported well. Like some of the browsers, you'd click play and nothing would actually happen. So it's an mm-hmm. evolution, right? It just has to yep. mature over time. Yep. Yeah, a lot of the video stuff seems similar to the early days still. Like mm-hmm. the way that you don't get real error messages and you don't get like <laughs> the way that you have to like give the media source API the data in the exact format or it will cry and it won't tell you, it won't tell you why it doesn't like it. Yeah. Do you, yes. On that note, do you guys get involved in the the standard side of WebRTC? Like, are you involved in that process at all? Like, helping them make the choices of like what errors should they be showing and things like that. 
No, I, I haven't gone. I involved. haven't either. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know what, what's actually available out there. We, we're we regularly involved in a group um, called FOMS, Foundations of Open Media. Have mm. you guys been yeah, to Yeah, I went to one of those events. Okay, cool. So that's always a nice like inroad to kind of some of the standards conversations. But yeah, I'd be interested to know kind of um, where that process is with the standards around WebRTC. Like, is it, do they consider it a completely finished spec? Or is it still in, in process? Details mm-hmm. like that, yeah. I think WebRTC like 1.0 is basically done. Hmm. And they're doing the finishing touches. They're gonna. I think Google said they want to have it all finished up by the end of the year. Hmm. What about Object RTC? Is that? I think that's just been folded in. Oh, okay. I'm not. I'm honestly not that up to date. And what's that? That's a API that's implemented in Microsoft Edge that is trying to simplify a lot of things. So instead of manipulating SDP messages strings and stuff, you have an object-oriented interface. Mm. So it's trying to make it a lot more user-friendly mm. to set up a connection and customize. You know, if you're doing regular video stuff, customize like the bitrate and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's built on top of WebRTC, it's just a UI or API on top of that? More or less, it's an API that's intended to replace the original oh, API. Oh, interesting. So last I checked, Edge had implemented that and not the regular WebRTC API. So mm. I'm not sure where unification of that is going. So so I know that Edge said they're going to implement the WebRTC API okay. in addition to ORTC. So they're okay. going to have both. But the, apparently you can shim them back and forth like they're equivalent, basically. Mm. So as long as you're not doing anything super fancy, mm-hmm. you can just use an adapter and then it'll you'll just write one app and then it'll work in all the browsers. Nice. Now that Safari will support WebRTC, is there any other major holdbacks on the browser landscape for WebRTC? Maybe no. on the mobile side? or Well, one thing I think is that uh, Edge still doesn't support data channels, um, mm. so it can only do video and audio. And I also think that Edge only supports some really weird, I can't remember now, is there something special about the version of H.264 that they support where it doesn't interoperate? Huh. With uh, Chrome, Firefox, but I, I don't. Oh, good. Do, I don't. Oh, I don't know. I don't think they're going to fix that. I think that's just like they just wanted. They wanted to help the Skype team get out their Skype for Web release, and so they mm. just used whatever Skype we needed at the time, and it's not interoperable. Okay. All right. Just to clarify, so WebRTC was originally kind of billed as a system for sending video and audio streams back mm-hmm. and forth. So it has. All of the logic to do adaptive bitrate and such built into it. What WebTorrent is doing is simply using the data channel and mm-hmm. not using any of that machinery. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot more modular, just built on top of sending messages across. Yeah, and that's true with any of the different. Um, so there's the companies that are doing peer to peer streaming right now, like Peer5 and Streamroot and groups, groups like that, mm-hmm. the, none of them are actually using the video capabilities of WebRTC. Right. Right? It's all the data channels. Like you, you might expect that they're using the video stuff, but they're not. Like it's, it's all about the, the data and sharing these blocks of data as opposed to video right. channels. You yep. get way more flexibility that way in terms of what you can do. Otherwise, you're pretty boxed in by the browsers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're doing like a actual chat with somebody. Then it does make sense to use that machinery because the browser is doing a bunch of stuff that would be really hard or impossible to do yourself from JavaScript land, mm-hmm. like rewriting all of the adaptive algorithm. And yeah, exactly. That, yeah. And doing like echo cancellation and mm. and uh, making sure that if your CPU is pegged for whatever reason by the browser by a different app on the computer, then it will lower the bitrate automatically. Mm. You can detect that condition, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah, 
that would be a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys did all this stuff with with PeerCDN. It's pretty great. Like, how much did that influence you with decisions you make going into WebTorrent? And like, are you planning to like productionalize in the same way? Is it is it going to be the same sort of offering going forward, or what does that look like? Yeah. So after we did the PeerCDN acquisition, I remember that I was giving a conference talk in like one of the first conferences I ever spoke at was Real Time Conf. In uh, 2013, it was like November or something, November 2013, and I was explaining WebRTC and you know explaining it to an audience of people that mostly like hadn't heard of it, and I was trying to think of cool use cases, and I was thinking, okay, well, BitTorrent over WebRTC is probably something that they would understand, and so the last slide in the deck was actually just, what if we could have this thing? Let's say we called it WebTorrent, and it did this, <laughs> and uh, and I said, you know, and then at the very end, I think I said like, you know, I'd like to build this. If you're interested in building this with me, come talk to me afterwards. <laughs> um, and actually, one of the people there, once some guy with lots of followers, Aral Balkan, he actually tweeted out a link to. I actually had a, I set up a repo for it right before the talk, and I was like, <laughs> that way, you know, people can star it and stuff. So even before it's done, and so then he tweeted a link out to it and said, check out WebTorrent, and there was nothing in there. So actually, he he then he got a bunch of messages from people who said like, where is the code? And he so then he messaged me, kind of not really angry, but sort of like kind of angry. He was like, what, what the heck, man? Where's the code? I was like, there's no code. You should have looked. <laughs> before you tweeted it, dude. Uh, so that's kind of how it started, and then people reacted really well to it and said that it was a good idea, and so then it, you know, wanted to go and work on it more. Hmm. But it, it has um, kind of a different mission than PeerCDN, right? Because it's trying to be interoperable with BitTorrent. Um, mm. So whereas with PeerCDN, we were free to make whatever decisions we wanted and come up with whatever protocols we wanted uh, mm. for signaling and for the actual data transfer. Uh, with this, we had to name everything exactly the same, even when the decisions didn't really make that much sense anymore because BitTorrent's an old protocol. It's from the from the like I guess late '90s, so they didn't even have JSON back then. Mm. So they used this other weird thing called Ben coding, and we had to keep that just because we want to be interoperable. Mm. So there's different trade-offs. And uh, PeerCDN was also trying to go for speed as much as possible, whereas with WebTorrent we were going for decentralization. So mm-hmm. we don't want to have any central servers that need to be trusted in the process. Mm-hmm. So when you're downloading files from other people, you can't trust the files they're going to send you. They're, they're right. random people on the internet. Mm-hmm. So you need to have a hash of the content in advance that you know is correct. And then you hash the content that the peers give you and compare it to the hash that you know to be representative of what you actually want. And if it matches, then you'll actually show it to the to the user. So who's going to give you that hash in a system like PeerCDN? See, in WebTorrent, you have magnet links, which contain a hash. Um, but in PeerCDN, you're just, you drop this script into your website, and it's just supposed to automatically make all your videos and everything uh, load over peer-to-peer. Uh-huh. So when you find a peer who says they have the content that you want, how do you verify it? You need to ask some trusted person to mm. give you a hash that you can trust. So what we did was we had a server that just sat there and would download any URL that anyone asked it to download and then return a hash of it. And that was part of the CDN infrastructure that was just trusted by all the all the browsers. Mm-hmm. right? And so that's something we didn't want to do in, in a WebTorrent system. So there's like different sort of decisions like that. No, that's a really interesting detail that the, the hash is built into the magnet link there, so you mm-hmm. don't need yep. any of that system. That's great. Yeah, nice. So, in general, like this whole idea of playing back a streaming torrent in a browser, like that feels like some deep, deep dark magic. So, I, I'm curious um, if we can talk a little bit more about the specifics there. Uh, so, you know, video stream is the package that I think, uh, as far as I can tell, handles most of the heavy lifting there. Um, yep, that's so correct. Tell us a little bit more. Well, so this uh, video stream started out when, for us, was doing a hackathon 
uh, working on oh, yeah. WebTorrent, and he called me <laughs> in the middle of the night and asked, uh, <laughs> what do we need to do to get it so you can actually stream a video and be able to seek around? Because before this, you could stream data into the video element, the HTML5 video element, but you couldn't seek because you always were just dumping the bytes in in order. Well, I didn't know what I was doing, so I, I just literally would call append bytes over and over again to just add bytes to the media source and, buffer. And that, that more or less worked. Yeah, but I didn't, but I didn't know what I didn't even know what I was doing. So that's why I called you, and I was like, "Why doesn't seeking work?" <laughs> so, so I, I basically gave him the bad news that I couldn't get that done. You know, that wasn't going to happen during the hackathon. But uh, eventually, I back in 2015, I started this project called VideoStream, which the basic idea is. You give it an HTML5 video element, and you tell it you want to play back at a certain position, which is wherever the media element is, and then it tells you what byte range to get, and then you feed it back in. Pretty much the same underlying mechanics that the browser normally does when it fetches a video from HTTP. If you just set the source to your video file, it'll automatically make the right range requests. But unfortunately, there, at least at the time, was not any way to get that information out of the browser. So originally I used mp4box.js to do the remuxing, and that worked moderately okay. There were some things that weren't compatible, so I made my own fork and patched some things up, and I was planning to upstream those changes. But after a while, I realized that the architecture made it very hard to evict data that I had fetched and so that it wasn't taking up RAM and it still had quite a few bugs. So I decided to go out and write my own remuxer, mostly from scratch. So I didn't start it. So that was in early 2016, I think. So I remember I went around and looked at different things that were out there. I'm not sure why I didn't use MuxJS. Oh, you saw that note. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't remember what my reasoning was at the time. But I ended up using a NPM package called mp4-stream made by Matthias Boos, who's Maffintosh on GitHub and Twitter. <laughs> and I ended up contributing some to that. It's a streaming, basically part of muxing and demuxing, just mm-hmm. the really low-level handling of the ISO base media slash mp4 container mm. format. And then... Video stream essentially does all of the actual remuxing itself. And it was designed to be a very minimal implementation. Mm-hmm. So it's only a few thousand lines of JavaScript for the whole thing. And can you talk a little bit about like what is the necessity around remuxing in that process? So the issue is that if you just use the video element with source equals a URL, the browser knows how to fetch all of the top-level metadata, which is the move box, and then know what bytes to It uses where. range requests. Yes, it uses range requests. The browser will automatically figure out what byte ranges to fetch. However, the media source extensions API works totally differently. There, you have to feed the browser the data it needs at any given time instead of being able to ask, oh, what 
byte ranges do you need? It would be really have been much simpler if I could just ask the browser, what byte ranges mm-hmm. do you need? But there isn't any good way to do that that works cross-browser. Why does the browser need to tell you which byte ranges you need? Well, if I seek around in a video, then I don't want to just have to wait for all the data to come in. Mm-hmm. So what I need to do is, if I seek like to the middle of a video, I need to figure out, well, what bytes do I need? And then I have to feed it to the browser in fragmented MP4, not the traditional MP4 where you have all the metadata up front. Mm-hmm. So essentially you have to convert all of the information about the individual frames or samples into from one big chunk of metadata right at the beginning or end of the file and repackage that so each fragment contains the relevant metadata. And then you can feed one fragment at a time to the browser. Mm. So basically, video stream will first start reading from the beginning of the file, it'll find the metadata, download that, and then it knows what byte ranges to request for what, and then it can dynamically piece together a complete fragment mm-hmm. to feed back into the browser. Yeah, that makes sense. And so the browsers have, I don't know what the, um, uh, what the status of this API is, but uh, there's been work in the W3C to, to actually define streams, like from the, the new Fetch API, like actually being able to pass the data through a stream, which is essentially like a pipe in the browser. Right. How much is what you're doing connected to some of the... Well, video stream internally uses the node stream API, okay. which was an earlier attempt at building streams. I don't know what the status is of integrating streams with Mediasource extensions. Do you know? I don't. I, I mean, I should say that like to call out what would be the benefit of that is that today, as you're making XHR requests to, to pull down a segment, you have to actually get the whole segment of, of data before you can then operate on that segment of data. So you're actually like storing the video data in, in multiple steps along the way. Whereas if the streams were built into the browser, you could just basically pipe the data through a process. And you wouldn't have these like memory inefficient steps along the way. I haven't seen anybody actually using that, but I haven't actually looked into it for a while. Doesn't yeah. Fetch have streams? You can it fetch, does. You can stream things from a server instead of using XHR, right? Yeah. So my stream HTTP browser module actually does support using the Fetch API hmm. HTTP streams. So that essentially transforms the browser stream into a node style stream. Oh, great. Which is what things using the node API expect. Mm-hmm. So you can actually connect stream HTTP straight into video stream and have it download over HTTP. Actually, that's one of the demos in the repo. Mm-hmm. So if you basically want to emulate what the browser could do just with the straight video <laughs> tag, but using a lot more machinery, uh, <laughs> that's out there. So you can do it, I mean, essentially, at some level, the media source source buffer API is a way to sort of quote-unquote stream data into the browser, but it doesn't follow the, the actual stream API that is being developed by W3C. No. Yeah, and that would that would be the main blocker. Is is there a stream input to source buffer? And I don't know that there is today. I don't. Yeah. I mean, not that I know of, yeah. but I haven't been keeping up on this. Yeah, me neither. Super close. It's too bad that the video tag couldn't just expose more information to you know us. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I feel I feel like uh, 
the media source API is cool, but with that, I haven't gotten too deep into it. It just seems like if the video tech could have just told us a little bit more information, like when someone seeks, just tell tell me what bytes to give you. You know, like mm-hmm. you just tell me which, which bytes you need at any given time, and I'll go get them for you. So if you you want the metadata in the MP4, just tell me which bytes you think they're at, mm-hmm. and then I'll go get them and give them to you. And it won't necessarily be over HTTP. It might be me getting it over WebTorrent. But mm-hmm. when I give them to the video tag, it should just do the right thing. Mm. If it could just do that, then my life would have been a lot easier. <laughs> well, potentially you could do something like this with service workers, which essentially mm. behave like a proxy that a page inserts in the browser to intercept that page's requests. And that could, in principle, let you do this if you can stream data in. And last time I looked, there was no way to actually provide a stream to as a response to a request, but the, that may have been that may be fixed by now. The idea John's talking about there is is uh, really cool. Did you guys catch it? I feel like it was subtle. He's basically saying that you could make a video tag with a source that is like some fake URL, mm. and then in your service worker, sit there and watch requests to that URL, mm-hmm. and intercept those, and then send a message back to the main window where WebTorrent is living, mm-hmm. uh, and say like, uh, oh, the browser tried to get this range, and then you could go get it over WebTorrent, mm-hmm. and then pass it back to the service worker, and have the service worker say, oh, I got it for you, uh, which is kind of Kind of un- yeah. unbelievable to me that that's it's even possible. Kind of a big hack, too. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, that's really. I mean, you're bypassing the whole media source extension exactly. API there. You're just making it look like to the video element. It just looks like another URL, and so it's it has all the infrastructure mm-hmm. built for everything else you needed to do. You're just kind of tweaking it right at the network level. So I, I actually haven't looked into this super recently, but the blocker to doing this. Well, one is it's not supported in a lot of browsers. Mm-hmm. The second. Was as I said that you can't, or last I looked, you couldn't provide a stream as a response. Mm-hmm. But the spec definitely says you should be able to. So mm. that's coming at some point. Mm. Yeah. Well, that'd if be it's not there already. Yeah. I guess the reason why the media source API doesn't do the exact use case that that we need is because it's it, the whole point of it was adaptive streaming, right? So doing the whole like, oh, just tell me the bytes to get doesn't make sense in that. Context because you want to do a bunch of your right. custom logic about what bitrate to pick and all that stuff. Sure, yeah. right. I, this is not what the media source API was originally designed for, mm-hmm. but it does work. Yeah, the original intentions of the the media source API was like, what's the bare minimum we can provide? What's the lowest level we can open up a door to make all of these other things possible? But you know, as I understand it, it's still kind of. Evolving to a degree, so this might be, you know, for instance, an interesting conversation to bring up at next year's FOMS. Like, I know there's there's discussion last year around the media capabilities API. Mm-hmm. That, that's hey, I'm working on stuff. that. I'm working on that. Hey, <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, maybe there's something a similar conversation we could have around just like the playback API and what is available to these applications that are trying to interact with media source extensions. Mm-hmm. What yeah. else could be valuable there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Totally. Hey, hey, Phil, real real quick, because I I didn't go to that session at Farms last year. Could you <laughs> could you explain a little bit about what the Media Capabilities API is? Yeah, Media Capabilities is a way to give not only very very simple information about whether a browser can play something preemptively, much more about like uh, what the experience will be like. Like, uh, are you going to send something that I can't display meaningfully on the displays I have attached? Like. 
other displays attached going to be able to do the DRM that's required, um, you know, the color profile that, that I'm going to give, um, what sort of impact are we going to have on battery life and CPU performance by streaming media of like a particular type or a particular like in bitrate and profile. So it'll give you kind of a, a like experience score as well as like a battery impact score. It's actually a pretty, pretty cool thing. And it's going to hopefully like, well, huge things, yeah, it's going to be able to tell you if you've got a, like HDCP attached monitors as well, which is uh, also a big thing because that doesn't really exist right now. Media source extensions kind of just makes a bit of a mess for you. So it's uh, quite exciting. Mm-hmm. It's uh, in the WCAG incubator stage. If you go on to uh, GitHub, you can work on the spec if you're interested. I'll take a look. Yeah, being able to know whether you have a hardware decoder or software decoder Seems like a really big win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually. I'd be curious. A common complaint that I've heard from people. It's like a complaint is the right word, but we were talking about this the other day. Like, you know, if we wanted to do FMP4 everywhere, for example, or like HLS everywhere, uh, you use something like HLSJS or ContribHLS, like we we're talking about, and like under the hood that uses MuxJS. And one of the problems that we have is that if you're on an iOS device, for example, you kind of like hand off all control to. Mm. The browser, mm-hmm, uh, right. or yeah, you lose everything, right? Which means if you if you have any like if you have custom ABR logic or something like that, you kind of lose it all. So you know people are talking like, oh, it'll be great once we have that in iOS, and it's just like, do we want to transmux like MP4s in in your iOS like Safari window? Like, is that even going to be efficient? Like, so I'm I'm curious. Like, you know, when we start talking about WebRTC potentially being supported in iOS. Are you guys concerned about like battery life or like data usage at all there? Or, like, I mean, ultimately, I think if we don't have to do any transmuxing in the browser, that would be great. And <laughs> I don't know. I mean, for something like WebTorrent, the easiest way, you know, from our point of view, would be if if the media source API were different and didn't require it. But I think the issues for more conventional video players. I think that's more of an issue of MPEG dash versus maybe HLS isn't the right choice to keep using for the long term. So we don't, and you know, we can have things that are already in the right format on disk or live streaming instead of doing anything client side. I mean, I think Apple's play, you know, here on in is very much like uh, the, we had the announcement yesterday, you know, native HEVC support, right? And in iOS and Interestingly, that's all like the, the the session that happened today for HEVC delivery to all iOS devices. It's all going to be FMP4. It's not going to be supported in transport stream containers. So I think that's a really obvious statement as to the direction Apple's going with like the way you need to transmit things when you're sticking it down a you know media source buffer. So I, I think Apple will finally get on the bandwagon soon. So. Yeah, that sounds like the right direction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please <laughs> go. Please, God. <laughs> cool. So I, I guess wanted to wrap this up by finding out like what's what's next for you guys. I mean, it seems a little bit like I think you even mentioned this in your bio uh, for us. But you know, you guys are a little bit of mad scientists. You've kind of built some crazy stuff. Are building some crazy stuff. Languages, frozen plantains, or whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you know, what are, are there any like crazy future plans for WebTorrent, or do you think you guys are going to focus on other? Yeah, I, I, I'm just curious, like where where you think you're you want to push WebTorrent forwards versus like use it as a basis for other things. Yeah, what's what's the next mad scientist role? Sure. Yeah, I think with WebTorrent, uh, it feels like it's in a pretty good place right now where it all works 
and we have desktop app that has a lot of happy users. Sure, there's things that could be better about it, but it's an open source project for a reason. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you have a complaint, you know, there's a way to fix it. <laughs> uh, pull request welcome. Uh, so it feels like it's in a good place in that in that regard. Where there's also lots of contributors um, who all have commit access to the repo. And I recently just moved the whole every repo in in WebTorrent. When there's a lot of different modules because it's a very modular torrent app. There's you know dozens of repos. Every little uh, piece of it, you know, parsing torrent files, parsing magnet links, talking to trackers, talking to the BitTorrent DHT to find peers. All these pieces, they're all now in an organization, just WebTorrent on GitHub, mm. and so it feels to me like it's it's in a good place where you know if I go away or disappear, that there'll be other people who can work on it and you know keep it going. So that was big for me. I'd never made a, a GitHub organization before. It felt like I was giving away my baby <laughs> in some ways. Like I don't, I didn't know what was going to happen, but mm-hmm. uh, I think it was the right thing to do because it's not. It hasn't been just me working on it for a long time now, so it makes sense to to do that. But yeah, as far as like future plans for WebTorrent, I guess just you know keep fixing bugs, making it more solid. I hope more Torrent apps add support for it, and I might, if I have time, like later, help send some pull requests to some other Torrent apps to add WebRTC. But the biggest blocker on that right now is WebRTC as a library is really hefty. The the different implementations that all exist all include all the video and audio stuff. So if you wanted to add uh, WebRTC support to like a popular torrent app, like let's say Transmission for Mac, or I guess that it's on all platforms now. But you'd have to embed this huge, you know, mm-hmm. like link to this huge C plus plus library. So there are some up and coming implementations in C that just do data channel, and they're really small and lightweight. And once those get solid, I think it would be pretty easy to just send a little pull request to a couple of these different torrent implementations, mm-hmm. and then we'll have a really strong network where they can all talk to browsers. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the biggest thing I'm excited about. I'd love to introduce you to uh, Nick Chadwick. We can talk about this more later. But he uh, <laughs> at a recent SF Video meetup, he talked about an open source project he's working on called LibRTPCPP. I think I got <laughs> oh, that, is that right. Just, is that a data? I think that's one of the data channel implementations that I yeah. looked at. Yeah, because like you know, like you said, like a lot of the current examples are bring in all the world of Chromium. Yeah, it's way too big. <laughs> or something like that. So he built, um, he wrote like a, a small tool to, to hopefully just like give you the things you need to be able to use WebRTC reasonably in a C++ project. Yeah, yeah, that would be huge. That would, that would really help. Because right now, like using it in Node, you know, if you want to have your server be a WebRTC endpoint is a little bit painful right now. Actually, some people's approaches are pretty hilarious. One of what's considered the best approaches right now is to uh, run a headless Electron instance, which is all of Chromium, basically, mm-hmm. well, all of the Chromium renderer, anyway, uh, and use the WebRTC implementation from that. <laughs> so that's, it's, it works the most reliably on, on the most platforms because Electron is really good at cross-platform. Uh. But uh, what a what a heavyweight way to do it! Yeah, right? no kidding. All right. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know, John, if you. Uh, have anything to well, add? Well, I think from my side, I would like to maybe do some more work on video stream to support containers that aren't ME4, in particular WebM or MKV, which are very similar. Mm-hmm. I'm personally excited about the AV1 codec. Mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. sure when it's going to be supported where, but I think we're definitely going to want to support uh, the WebM container in in video stream at some point for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be great. Cool. Yeah, so I think I think that's all the time we have for today. But uh, I wanted to really thank you guys for coming in. This yeah. has been awesome so far. As I say, we're wrapping up. <laughs> we didn't get to talk about <laughs> banana chips. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, wait. Before we before <laughs> yeah. we like let's let's close on that note. I don't know if you want to publicly share what you're doing. Oh, Is this a secret? Nah, that's fine. <laughs> well, this started as a 
mostly just me kind of messing around with things. But, uh, well, I, I was trying to make this device sort of like an opposite microwave for rapidly cooling drinks. <laughs> I realized that's not too practical. for It does work, but it's not very practical. It kind of splashes everywhere, and it takes too long. And But uh, I realized vacuum frying has been around for a while. The idea is you can fry something at relatively low temperatures. And what that does is it means that it doesn't get terribly cooked, but it does get that nice uh, flavor where the bit of the oil gets into it. And I realized, well, I can do an even better job of that if I have a really low temperature. So I've managed to make some banana chips that taste pretty good, but uh, it's, <laughs> currently it's extremely slow in small batches in a manual process. So we'll see if I ever actually make that into anything, but they do taste good. Kickstarter.com slash. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Maybe at some point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the small batches sounds like a plus to me. That's the thing people go for, you know? Yeah. Well, Artisan. small batch. Yeah. <laughs> for, for now, we're talking like to make a half a cup of banana chips, you have to sit there for an hour twiddling knobs. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite ready for prime time. Just a mere $30 per chip. Exactly. It'll be great. Precisely, yeah. The sum with the mill with the toast. It'll be awesome. Yeah, if there's one city you're going to do it in, it's going to be San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. You guys uh, yeah, really thank, appreciate it. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, hopefully, we'll see you next time. And again, everybody go submit talks. And hopefully, we'll see you in October. That's all we have for today, but as always, we'd love to hear what you thought, even if you disagree, so please reach out on Twitter at Demuxed. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 